0: I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. The Dakota Lakes Research Farm in Pierre, South Dakota is a cooperative effort between South Dakota State University and the nonprofit Dakota Lakes Research Farm Corporation. It's a farmer-led initiative focused on identifying and developing profitable no-till systems designed for producers in the Northern Great Plains. Duane Beck has been the research manager of Dakota Lakes since 1990. Among his many contributions to the understanding of using no-till and dryland acres, One of the most significant has been identifying the important role crop rotation plays in minimizing weed, disease, and insect problems while increasing the potential for profitability within the system. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, we're giving Frank a little break and joining Cover Crop Strategies Associate Editor, Sarah Hill, in the first of a two-part interview with Beck. Join us as he talks about how he got involved with the Dakota Lakes Research Farm, how his work on irrigation and dry land systems led him to focus on no-till and cover crops, some of the challenges he faced when transitioning away from tillage, and much more. To get us started, Duane, talk a little bit about your background. Did you grow up on a farm? What were your growing up years like?
1: Well, I grew up on a farm. You know, livestock, diverse, like the old days, diverse grain and livestock farm south central south dakota close to the missouri river and then i was the youngest son for one thing so your chance of farming if you're the youngest son you know is dramatically different than the older ones and then we also had vietnam which was causative factor in decision making at that time which Mm A lot of people didn't understand, but you kind of had a choice to go to the military or go to college at that time. And then they, you know, then shortly after I started college, they changed it. So that didn't really save you either. But but I had already started. So, yeah, I went and did actually a chemistry, physics, math type degree, which, um, well, I think that is important, actually, to the way we approach things. But but I did that and went and taught school for a few years. And I, I guess I wasn't aware that you could actually do science and agriculture together, which, you know, I guess I wasn't looking. But, I, you know, I started out kind of in a chemical engineering thing and decided I didn't want to be in a building. So then I backed off and, and just did a chemistry degree in math, which actually was a good thing. Then I taught school for three years at Gettysburg. Um, and at Gettysburg, the, the guy who lived next to me in the apartment building managed the fertilizer plant. Now this is a time where hardly anybody in that area would have used fertilizer, because they're all winter wheat summer fallow people, and they maybe put a little bit of phosphorus on a starter with their wheat. Well, they're spring wheat fallow, but they were wheat fallow. They were, you know, and they root some of them were a little corn for forages and stuff like that, but there really wasn't any serious, serious farming. And they were all in this, this um, mode of farm fence row to fence row and whatever. It was after the 73 Earl Butts thing. And we had all the Okies come up from the south and b- busted a bunch of ground in this area all in the seventies was, that was going on and. But anyway, the guy who lived next to me hired me to bag fertilizer after school, which you have to have two jobs to be a school teacher. So that was my evening job. And then, you know, it, that kind of grew into doing something with him uh, in the summer, and the irrigation was just starting to come in because everybody with high prices and stuff decided that, that it was good to put irrigation in. We had all this water in these reservoirs and somebody had invented a center pivot in the 50s and 60s, but electric drive pivots were in the early 70s and that meant that they could crawl the hills in this country, whereas the water drives and stuff couldn't really, they had to have fairly flat ground. They couldn't go up over big hills. And so guys decided they were gonna put in a bunch of pivots and I got involved with fertilizer dealer right at that time and SDSU was doing some things in the area in the summer at the same time. They wanted to look at this new irrigation, <laughs> you know, because they were used to the other irrigation where it was flat and whatever. They wanted to see what was happening out there. And, and I, you know, I just accidentally got involved because I was working for the fertilizer dealer and needed somebody to take samples. Well, that was me. You know, met Paul Carson from SDSU and Red Paul from SDSU. And uh, one thing led to another and I got back to graduate school. You know, but the same farmers that I worked with at the co-op to a large extent, you know, Ralph Holsworth and, 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 you know, Dan Cronin and his, his guy, Danny Forgey, I mean, they were some of the pivotal people in, in the start of the no-till thing when it happened. But, you know, chemistry, you do think about things a bit differently than you do most ag research is done trial and error. It's not the same as chemistry. You can't really do chemistry trial and error. There's too many potential things to try and too many bad things that could happen. So so you look more at systems and stuff. And I think that did impact how I approach things.
0: So now, what did you get your graduate degree in?
1: My major is agronomy, soil fertility. And then I have minors in ag engineering and chemistry.
0: And so then, how did you end up here at Dakota Lake?
1: When we were working at the fertilizer dealer and as I did my PhD work on soil fertility, there was a huge problem with runoff under irrigation machines. So they put these irrigators up on the top of the hills and pumped the water all the way up the hill. and, And energy at the time was relatively cheap when they first put them in. And they watched the water run back down the hill. And part of it is they were just doing way too much tillage, but that's what they were used to. And so we noticed that, and we started to do some things with that when I was still a graduate student. And although I was working in soil fertility, we were trying to solve this problem for guys. And it was also a problem that they had dirt blowing everywhere. You couldn't drive from Gettysburg to Pier, in the wintertime, you be assured you'd make it home if the dirt if the wind came up. I mean, it was, you know, obviously there was something really wrong with the system. And that had happened before. It happened in the 30s, and everybody kind of forgot. But anyway, Dakota Lake started as a result of the work we were doing with runoff. We got a grant along with Darrell DeBoer. I was just a graduate student, so Darrell DeBoer got the grant. But to look at... I was finishing my PhD to look at different ways of trying to stop the runoff on these, on these less soils. And, and we had all these diamers and dikers and rippers and mechanical solutions to a biological problem. But we put in no-till or real low-tillage type systems because they were supposed to give you the most runoff at that time, every scientist would tell you that. We found out the opposite. But the farmers were intrigued by what we were doing in terms of both the runoff and some of the other management things we were doing. Cause they, they weren't used to irrigation and they weren't used to growing corn and whatever. And they, we had a field day, we had this machine, you know, big, look like these ones out in the yard. These big irrigators are the ones we have out in the fields. And we would go through the field and change sprinklers as we went looking at different sprinklers and things. And we'd had a field day and then after the field day and we, we kind of had supper and then they got to talking about what well, we need to more this kind of work here. Well, the irrigation research farm in South Dakota at that time was at at Redfield because the water from the dams was supposed to come to the Jimmer Valley to irrigate because you couldn't possibly grow corn in Huron and Aberdeen and Redfield without irrigation it's too dry. Everybody knew that. All the scientists, everybody knew that.
0: We'll get back to Sarah and Dwayne Beck in a moment, but I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's martintil lcom Before we get back to Sarah's conversation with Dwayne Beck, here's Frank with a little known no-till farmer fact.
2: This week's no-till fact uh, goes across the Pacific Ocean to Asia, and we'll look at what's happening with no-till in that area of the world. Peter Hobbs is convinced that no-till is a solution for feeding Asia's increasing population. With growers in Bangladesh, India, Nepal, and Pakistan leading the way, the continent's no-tilled acres are growing at an amazing pace. He sees five major benefits for increasing the no-tilled acres throughout Asia. Saving water, save as much as 50% of the available water found under Asia's extremely dry ground can be saved by no-tilling. Higher yields, no-till will let you harvest rice three to four weeks earlier than with plowed ground. Reducing costs, this can take place here as in other areas of the world, especially with no-tilled rice. Fewer weeds by leaving the soil undisturbed with no-till, fewer weeds germinate while earlier wheat seeding leads to shading out of weed growth. And finally, reducing greenhouse gas emissions by shifting to no-till and reducing the need for tractor and water pump power as much as 75% less fuel is burned each year. So that's what's happening in Asia.
0: Let's get back to the program now as Dwayne Beck explains why Dakota Lakes was set up as a partnership with South Dakota State University instead of being run by it.
1: So the irrigation research farm was there associated with that Owyhee project. And I just said to him, I said, well, you know, you can't really do research unless you have some kind of a facility, at least a rudimentary Permanent facility, because I was doing it with this machine that we bought just for it. And it was one site and we didn't have people, didn't have buildings. And we had kids and me living in a trailer house out there. And it was just kind of crude. But I said, if you really want to get serious, you got to have at least some kind of a permanent site that a guy can develop some things and look long term. And one of the farmers said, well, I'll go my my brother in law is in the legislature. I'll go get you money. By land, And I said, well, you don't really want to do that because if you do, then the university runs it and you may not get the kind of research you really want. What you need to do is to own the facility yourself and then work with the university in terms of management. So this place is owned by a not-for-profit corporation that was established at that time. That was established like in 82. So it was re- really early on. And their goal was to develop a research center along the Missouri River and have a relationship with SDSU and, and it might have been 81 that it started, but it was way back. And you know, then they ran into the 80s, which were god-awful, you know, and the price of energy went up and the price of commodities went down and interest rates went through this, you know, whatever. And, um, and there wasn't much enthusiasm for agriculture but they held together it was sometimes it was tough you know they'd have their annual meetings and yeah well we could just disband and not do it anymore and but they held together and as part of that they encouraged the guy who was director of the Ag experiment station who said he would he would if they got a property and put a building on it and he would run a research station there but they did tell him that they'd like to have me hang around if they could figure out how to do it. So they put me at Redfield to run the irrigation farm at Redfield. And I could still run that little remote site that we had. And so I ran the Redfield farm from 83 till 90 when this farm started. And things kind of muddled around in the 80s until 1989. We we had done some things at Redfield. We started doing the no-till and those kind of things at Redfield. And Redfield basically was producing spring wheat and barley predominantly, and maybe a few sunflowers in Jimmer Valley. There were some livestock guys that were producing some corn, mm-hmm. but there really wasn't much. I think there was 1,900 acres of, of soybeans in Spink and Brown County combined in 83. And I thought I could grow soybeans there without irrigation if I no-tilled them. So we started no-tilling dryland beans and no-tilling dryland corn. And in 88, when they had that big gas drought. We had green crops and good crops, and nobody else had anything, and it was like an epiphany to everybody, and dirt blowing. And so, you know, that created some real interest everywhere. And when George Mickelson was governor, his cousin, George Turner, was on our board. We could never get a governor to buy off on this idea. And George Turner got to George Mickelson at a family reunion. We sent him on a mission. We just wanted a meeting. But George Mickelson also had put in a penny sales tax to start the governor's office economic development right, and had been there for three years and almost four. He was coming up for reelection in in uh, ninety. He hadn't done anything for agriculture with that money, and George reminded him of that. So we got a meeting with George and we explained what we wanted to do and what was happening. And and this is mostly the farmers when I say we, I was just a little mouse in the corner feeding them information. And Ray Moore was there from the experiment station. And so we had Jay Swisher, Secretary of Ag. And he decided it might be a good project and he would give us up to $125,000 if we matched it $2 for $1 with private funds toward what we're doing. And the other part of that is this exact piece of property. We were always looking for a piece of property that fit what we needed to do. And this piece of property had come up, became available, came up for sale. And we had an agreement, rent with an option to buy on it. So that was the other part of it, because you, you couldn't really get going until you had the right piece of property. And I had a big list of things that was needed for the right piece of property. It had to be on the highway, it had to be easy to find, you know, it had have visibility. I wanted it close to an airport you know, in case somebody wanted to fly in. And then there was this whole group of farmers who were all irrigators. And some were from Chamberlain and Platt in that area, and some were Gettysburg and Mobridge and and North of Pier And if you... Picked a site north of Pier. Nobody from south of Pier would vote for it. If you picked a site from south of Pier, nobody from north of Pier would vote for it. You know, in this, you can get here from the south and not have to go through Pier. You can get here from the north and not have to go through Pier. So it's perfect. And and it's not north and it's not south. It's just there it is. And it's not the best soils, but it's got nice visibility. And. Um, so we had that opportunity when we met with Mickelson, we knew that we had that on the table, we hadn't done it. And after the meeting, nobody really knew, but we'd really done our homework in terms of the people, Jim Hill that worked for him as his management budget guy. We had smoothed him, you know, the right people had smoothed him, it wasn't me, but um, he was on board and Jay Swisher was on board, the Secretary of Ag. And so when George Mickelson said, well, if these guys can figure out how to rig the thing, then then yeah, I think we'll do it. And that's where that $125,000 thing came from was after after the meeting, it wasn't it was like a week later. So we walked out of there and we didn't know for sure if he was gonna go or not. So now you have to either commit on this land or not commit. And you had to put down the money to do the rental, at least, with the option to buy. It wouldn't force you to buy it, but it would. And one of the farmers just said, well, I'll just write a check. So he just just wrote a check. He got repaid, but I was kind of going, I don't think I could do that. My wife would have killed me. (laughs) It's a pretty big check. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a little different. You know, I mean, a little different dynamic, but he was a different generation. You know, it was, they didn't, maybe the wife, his wife didn't get involved in the business side of things, but whatever, it was a good, it was a, it was a good thing to have happen right at that point in time. And so that was in uh, spring of 89. Um, now, what do you do with Redfield? You know, we had good things going on there. And, and um, unfortunately, a lot of that has gone bad all the stuff with salinity and things that have happened in Jimmer Valley. I think if they would have had a presence there it wouldn't have happened, but I presented three budgets to the director of the experiment station to take to the legislature. Uh, one was to turn Redfield into a dry land, change the presence there to be a dry land presence instead of an irrigation presence. And, the, and the land we're on there wasn't owned by, It was owned by a private farmer, so that was not a good thing. So I kind of thought we should try to do something like Dakota Lakes there and do out here the irrigation part and and dry land both. And that was one option. One option was to have both of them as irrigation-type things, which would have been quite a bit more expensive to have capability both places. And then one was to throw Redfield under the bus and come here. And we had a president at the university at the time that would let no one but him present the budgets to the legislature. And Mickelson had bought off on the middle option, the one of making that a dry land thing, if we could do that and then do this one. And he'd actually bought off on that with our board, but the legislators didn't necessarily know that. I mean, that's the number he had in his budget, but somebody asked the president why why there's three options here, and he had no idea that he hadn't done his homework, so they went for the cheap one, so they just threw Redfield under the bus. So the, in in the spring of 89, we got control of this about May, and we planted cover crops on it, no-till cover crops on it. The first year just has something to do. <laughs> What cover crop did you plant? We had cereal rye, which it'd be a death knell out here now if somebody wanted to do that because they're all winter wheat growers. But they didn't know I'd done that. And oats and peas and just something to get cover on it and get keep the weeds down and put a hold on it because I, I didn't get any more money or people or anything that first year and then. And then in, uh, we harvested all of our stuff at Redfield in the fall and moved everything here over the winter and fired up and had a full functioning operation here the next year, which I don't know exactly how we pulled that off. If somebody said, you have to do that now, i go, nah, you can't do it. <laughs> Never happened. So that's kind of how it happened to be here, but it was... You know, it was the farmers that put this together, and then the budget from Redfield basically came here, including me and halftime secretary and a couple guys. And we just started out from there. The Oh, the irrigators, the, the, my boss had told him that if they put water at the edge of the farm that he would, he would put all the irrigator stuff on. He didn't have the money by that time because of the changes Ronald Reagan made in Ag research, which nobody really talks about, but it should. But he didn't have the money. And he said to me in private, he said, I don't have the money. And I said, but you told him. He said, yeah, I know. He said, you're just going to have to dry land farm it until you have the money to put on irrigators. And I said, if you do that, these guys will throw you to the wolves because that's not what you promise. So we borrowed the money to put, on the, put the irrigators out. And um, we borrowed that from the corn council, which was great. So there are a lot of players in this thing that, that were important in those early days to get us going. You know, they, they, they lent us some money so we didn't have to go to a bank and get it. Um, the Department of Ag had lent us the money to buy the land in the first place that first spring. And then when we got our fundraising done, we paid them off. And we got the governor's check in September of '90 because that was good up for the election time. So we had a big hoo-ha and a field day, and the governor got to carry in one of these big checks, and everybody took pictures, and we're all happy. And I'm no nowhere in any of those pictures because it really is the farmers, and it still is. It's really the farmers that, you know, I'm going to retire and go on. The farmers' families are going to still be involved, and and. Um, Several years ago, the, the my wife Ruth was very important in all this stuff because we could not have done any of it without her kind of being there and raising those really good daughters we have. But um, she works and she's an extension person. She's an extension field specialist. She has a master's in soils.
0: You talked about during your graduate school years mm-hmm. that you worked with some of the those people mm-hmm. who were some of the forefathers of mm-hmm. tilling. Talk about that experience and, and what that was like to work with them and what you learned from them.
1: Well, they thought we were, they weren't no-tilling. Oh, they weren't? No, no, they were doing tillage. They had big-time tillers. They had moldboard plowed. They were just really into it. Uh, okay. I was working with them on their irrigation, and, and we were, one of the things we did to stop the runoff was to pull a ripper between the cornrows, did all kinds of goofy stuff, and it kind of worked. It's kind of like, you know treating a symptom not really addressing the cause but our research work we did there at gettysburg to begin with was starting to to show the that we needed to do a better job of all the things people talk about now in terms of making water go in the soil the macropores and the cover and all that stuff we we started doing that actually on that demo farm That and you know when we started here i had 11 member board of directors they were all conventional till guys in 1990 um 1989 and they were all irrigators and so we're now we're going to move ahead and we got to decide how we're going to design things so i drew up this design for where the irrigators go and how we're going to do things and what size of pumps and and all that stuff and i just said to him now if if I could do this the way I want to, I would no-till it all and just be totally committed to only doing no-till. But at Redfield, we had developed this no-till diverse thing in those seven years. So we were fairly comfortable with it there. And we didn't know what it was gonna do out here, but we knew it was gonna be better than, than having tillage. And, and you need more equipment if you're gonna do tillage. And we didn't have any good equipment at Redfield, even in 83, I mean, it, we had nothing. And <laughs> we just yeah, we had a 2040 John Deere uh, and a 706 and a three-bottom rollover plow type thing. I mean, it was it was a disaster. And I said, if, if I can no-till it all, I can put in smaller irrigation motors at the river and I can run low-pressure irrigators and I can do this and this. And, and I don't need the tillage equipment. I don't need the big tractor. And, and so this is what it'll cost you was less money to do it this way. But I said we have to commit to being all no-till, so we can't do tillage, and we can't let guys from the university come here and want us to do tillage and whatever. You have to say no, we don't do tillage here, and um, and they had quite a discussion about it. And then and then Ralph Holsworth says, "I know how to farm with tillage. I don't know how to no-till. Let's just no-till the damn thing. See what happens." And they all went, oh, "Okay."
0: It was that easy.
1: No, it wasn't easy. It was like a whole <laughs> afternoon, but. They but
2: finally got to but hell.
1: the pressure was really on then, right? and 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 can you now do it this way? In the first couple of years, of course, the ground had been beaten to hell before we got here. so you had you had some issues. And I mean, if we drive around now, there's just very few weeds out there because we've got the good rotations going
0: Talk a little bit more about some of those issues that you encountered those first few years.
1: Well, I mean you have you have a water cycle that's totally broken and and you have a mineral cycle that's totally broken and you have to build up your biology i mean they they would here they would grow one crop wheat every two years so they had done seven tillage passes between harvesting one crop of wheat and planting the next one you know they'd till all summer i mean a, a winter wheat guy would harvest in july he'd probably till it twice before fall once right after harvest and once in the fall and then he would till it four or five times the next spring, you know, and get all. And then in September, over a year later, he would plant his next crop of wheat. I mean, you, you go over a year between, mm-hmm. between when you had something growing there. And the spring wheat guy's even worse because he'll wait until the next May or June, April, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the guys up north were spring wheat guys. I mean, they were just, yeah, just got awful stuff. And lots of weeds, and, and we didn't have a lot of chemistry. And, and, but we learned at Redfield how to handle a lot of this stuff, and thanks to Leon Regie and I did a lot of stuff at the time we were in Redfield. And so the challenges were, the instinct is to do the whack-a-mole thing, which is still what's going on in a lot of eastern South Dakota. It drives me crazy. You know, we got, we got this new thing, and, and oh, this will kill it. You know, and this'll kill it. And and you go, well, why is it there? If you asked why is it there? What have you done that allowed that plant to become a problem or that insect to become a problem? And but that's not what they necessarily wanted to hear. And this, you know, the same way here, we had guys that were hardcore wheat growers that our rotation stuff at Redfield we did we started a rotation study at Redfield when we were there. We did and the wheat commission funded. It was a seven year no till rotation study right and then we got here we started one on the other side of the river in the clay soils 30 miles 30 some miles from here you had to go through pier and get down there but they're on the the heavy clay soils that they have in west river south dakota and we did one there that was even bigger it was um, a half section of ground and and we had 15 rotations all repeated four times and the Wheat Commission funded those, and, and I, I really give them a lot of credit because they were the people that were going to probably lose. But the first one, when I asked for the money, I had done enough. I mean, I started doing no-till soybeans right away and no-till corn at Redfield. And um, almost into my PhD because I said, I think we can grow corn and beans in the Jimmero Valley without irrigation. And one of my guys in my community just thought I was... Totally incompetent to even think that. And he lived long enough to see it. And I'd always see Larry go, we have been to Aberdeen lately. And he'd he just laugh. You know, we had a good laugh about it because, you know, as a scientist, you, you know, you are wrong at times. But the, the Wheat Commission people, they get their money from Wheat Checkoff. Just like Corn Council gets their money from Corn Checkoff. And they want to do research on corn. And the wheat people want to do research on wheat. And so they're doing these stupid studies, like they had one at Raymond. You know, it's wet over there. And they were doing a wheat summer fallow, spring wheat summer fallow, winter wheat summer fallow, and a continuous wheat type study there with different tillage systems. I mean, it's the stupidest thing in the world. Why would you? But to be fair, most of the farmers around there were growing only small grains because of their tillage, they couldn't really do any more than that. And I started doing the no-till stuff right away, and, and we were having really good luck with it. And, but I wanted to know what rotations we should use, because I learned that from my grandpa. Because and, and, he, he and my dad and my grandpa would not do anything stupid like that, where they did continuous anything. And, and, um, and I went to the Weed Commission, and I, I just frankly said to him, the, I said, the only good economic reason to grow weed in the Jim River Valley is to have so, uh, stubble to plant my corn and soybeans into. You know, I can make more money in the corn and soybeans, but I need to have the wheat stubble. I need to have that in my rotation. And we still say that. You know, the department head of plant science was a good friend of mine. He had been the wheat breeder. He just had a fit when I said that. He said, these guys are just going to hate you. I said, no, they're not. They're farmers. I'm just being honest, and they can look at my numbers. And so they funded that study, and they funded the big one out West River here. But there were people who come up from Oklahoma and did wheat and summer fallow and that's what they wanted to do and they didn't want to do anything but that and this threatened the heck out of them and and so that was a challenge they went to the wheat commission said if you don't quit funding that kind of stuff we're gonna we're gonna refund all of our checkoff money and they're big farmers right well then we'd had some big farmers that were doing what we were talking about and they said well if you don't fund it we're gonna you know (laughs) and you're going but you had, you know, had you had things that you didn't know, didn't have the good tools, and you didn't have, you didn't know exactly how to handle them. And they, you know, we learned better on those rotation studies how to manage weeds and stuff. And and that's still the biggest problem we have in, in the whole United States is nobody's really looking at the ecosystem and trying to mimic mimic those natural water cycles. But we did that study out West River went for 12 years. And, and you got to do that with a rotation study. And we had these different rotations went everything from wheat summer fallow to done with no-till, but wheat chem fallow and wheat green fallow, where we just put a cover crop in, all the way to corn soybean. And then Randy Anderson from USDARS at, at Brookings, oh, he's gone, he's retired now, but he went out after 12 years, we rented that land and we had to put it back into a uniform crop before we turned it back to the landowner, and and that's fair. And so we put the whole thing to spring wheat. Just didn't plant anything in the fall of the year before, and then harvested all these different plots in the fall, and then planted spring wheat and everything. So he went into every one of those plots, and we, he he in the spring when we were ready to plant, he counted all the weeds in the different plots, and then we sprayed a burn down, and and um, and we planted the the spring wheat. And then we didn't do anything until later, and he counted all the weeds again, and then we sprayed I think some bronate or something innocuous and then and then at the end of the year, he counted all the weeds that were left in the different plots and you know there's there's like a ninety six percent cent difference in weed control depending on the crop rotation wow. and the and the other thing that was interesting is is identified by species and each of those crop rotations selected for a different bunch of weeds because that's the one that get have the opportunity in that rotation and one i you know that comes to mind is like the canada thistle and milkweed in a corn rotation are just everywhere and, and you know you and our west river where they hadn't ever really grown spring weed we all sudden have wild oats show up where we had only spring wheat and and whatever we just had a rotation with spring wheat and corn bean or something, and I guess, yeah, we had spring wheat corn bean and uh, spring wheat corn flax, and wild oats showed up there. And you're going like, okay, where would that come from? It's just fascinating, you know, but it taught me that, okay, Mother Nature is an opportunist, and if you have a problem, you provide that opportunity, so how do you take the opportunity away? And that's kind of the bottom line of the whole thing
0: in all of your years using no-till what would you say are the top three takeaways
1: residue is your friend it's not your enemy it's not not something you take off and sell right you it's your friend and if you take it off you pay because you've you've stolen from the soil biology and then you know the the kind of the depends on you where you're at but here You know, we have some of these West River clay soils, these true vertisols, the promise clays and stuff that we farm. Most of the land we farm is really tough stuff. This is not the best site from a soil standpoint. We have one quarter that's pretty good, but the rest of it's pretty tough. And the thing you learn is, you know, that, you know, depending on how you do the rotations and stuff, you can stack the deck in your favor to a certain extent in terms of being able to seed on time and those kind of things. But there are times on those soils where you wait until they're ready. And if you start trying to beat them into submission, it doesn't work. you know. So I, I finished seeding sunflowers today, and I finished soybeans up there yesterday. And I think I'd been there five times or maybe six times with the machine and pulled in and went a ways and went, no, we're not ready yet. <laughs> you know on those soils i mean we manage them so most of the time we don't have to we don't have to plant into heavy residue early in the spring so the way we have the rotation sequence and we don't have to go into really heavy re- residue early in the spring so we have crops like sunflower and soybean that are go into the really heavy residues we had two years of winter wheat there before this year so the last two years it's been winter wheat both years and you know 85 bushel winter wheat both years and harvest it with strip red so you have this whole mound of residue out there to to feed the biology and keep the keep the et down and those kind of things and and i just you know people say what do you plant there and i said i plant a catch-as-catch-can broadleaf and if they're not cowboys they don't know what i'm talking about right but if you go to a rodeo calf roping is catch-as-catch-can you way you can get the rope on the calf if it stays on there until you get there it's fine and that's what this is. So when, when we come out of that two years a week, we do a catch-as-catch-can broadleaf. And if it's dry in the spring, we'll plant canola or something like that if it, or peas. If it's not dry in the spring, we just kind of wait. And when it gets ready, which it will, it'll get warm out here and you'll get ready to go, and then we go plant it. And that's way easier, you know.
0: Just having that patience to wait.
1: Well, understanding that no matter what you do, you know, if I went in and, and tried to do something, I don't, you know, the most stupid thing in the world is vertical tillage, you know, cuts your infiltration rate in half and whatever. And it's just another machine you don't really need to have. And it starts all your weeds growing. The same same Randy Anderson did this whole thing on disturbance and weed control. And he and I have both shown those data for years. And and if you don't disturb, you're really, you're controlling the weed seed bank. And if you start disturbing, you're bringing up old seeds and whatever. So. You know, I have a slide I made one time. I followed somebody on the program that talked about all the different kinds of tillage, which I didn't realize there was all these different kinds of tillage, you know. I spent an hour talking about these different kinds of tillage you could do. And I'm going, really? And I'm next and so i made this slide up and i'm kind of looking i'm sitting in the back and i made it up and i'm looking at it on my computer screen in the back of the room and a friend of mine sat down beside me looked at it, and said why do you keep staring at that and i said i'm trying to figure out if i'm a big enough asshole to use it right and the person actually got done talking folded up the computer and left the room you know so or left the building so i was going this is easy and it, it basically said all tillage tools reduce infiltration all tillage tools increase erosion, all tillage tools increase weeds, all tillage tools increase evaporation.
0: And what to the audience, how do they respond to that?
1: They know me, they go, "Oh yeah, that's what he'd say, but it's like strip till. We did strip till in Redfield in the 80s and it didn't make any sense to me. And I can show you all kinds of slides why it doesn't make any sense, but what you're doing is causing all these different weeds and then You know, I think we did. We had one of those trials in the fall of 87, went and did strip till and put fertilizer out there and whatever. And then it was so dry in the spring of 88 that we had to decide whether to plant where fertilizer was or move over where the residue was. And then you got the thing where it gets too wet and you can't plant. So then you've wasted all your fertilizer money and it's out there. It's the wrong place, the wrong time. None of that made any sense to me. Our farmers here are that you know, you go up and down this riverfront. They they do most of them do a pretty good job. And 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 what happened? And and Dan Forgey from Cronin Farm said it to me again this morning. But he said, you know, we were going broke in the, at that period of time when I popped up with this no-till idea. And they didn't really, you know, in the late '80s. I mean, it was it was tough. in and, and early '90s, you know, and they you don't you don't. You don't change your eating habits until you had your first heart attack. So part of the reason this all happened and we were successful is because those guys were having heart attacks. And the other time we see people is when they want to get their kid involved.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry.
2: A reader recently asked uh, what's happening with the strip-till acreage and what can we predict might happen in the next 10 years? Well, it's difficult to predict the anticipated increase in strip-till acres since neither the government or anyone else collects data indicating how many acres are farmed with this system today. In 2007, we had estimated there were 3.6 million acres of strip-tilled grounds, but it's grown dramatically since that time. The best guess among the no-till editors is that an estimated 10 million acres in the U.S. will be strip-tilled by the year 2030.
0: Thanks to Sarah Hill and Duane Beck for today's discussion. Be sure to tune in to listen to part two of this interview in a future episode. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jagerlock at or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lisseter and our entire staff here at Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlock. Thank you for listening.